you work hard and you're reasonably smart and you are reasonably honest, you are almost certain to become pretty rich. You're listening to the Next Generation Podcast, weekly interviews with the most interesting and successful 20-somethings out there. Today's show, we have Moses Kagan, co-founder and partner at Adaptive Realty. Moses has purchased and renovated more than 100 apartment buildings in the Los Angeles market and currently owns just over $200 million in real estate. Moses, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me, guys. Uh, excited to be here. And I should say, uh, we own that much real estate. We got a lot of investors who invest with us. Moses, I'm really excited for this episode in particular. I think the way that we kind of got connected to the show is that you have this tweet, and I'll just kind of read out the tweet here verbatim basically saying, having lived through them along with a lot of peers, your 20s are so powerful, you can likely take huge swings without much downside, but you only get a few of those swings before life intervenes to tone down your risk acceptance. Better pick great pitches to swing at. Um, and I think you know, you've got a lot of really good life lessons on your blog and Twitter and all of that kind of stuff uh, that we, we're going to definitely go and dive into in terms of knowing what those swings are and kind of like how to go and get good career advice when you're first starting off. I think one book I recently read that I don't know if, if you've heard of it's called thinking and bets um, and it's, it's by a professional poker player Annie Duke and basically uh, she summarizes pretty well that it's impossible to not make bad decisions from time to time like just life happens and eventually you're going to make some bad decisions but if you want to go and essentially improve the decision quality it's all about uh, improving the choices you're making to go and get that good outcome that good desired outcome without necessarily guaranteeing that you're going to get there. I'd love to maybe start off with a few activities that you've maybe seen people make early in their career that has maybe led to increasing their chances of those desired outcomes or uh, starting them off well on their career. Yeah, uh, big topic um, and one I'm super passionate about, so I'm excited to talk about it. Um, I want to um, start out by saying that uh, I, you know, I come from a family that um, where, uh, that was very supportive of me, um, actually, until my early 30s. Um, I, I was on my parents' health insurance until I was 31 or something like that, which is way after I started doing real estate deals. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to give you my opinion about this stuff, but I want to caveat it all by saying, like, I'm coming from a place where uh, I had family help and, like, I wasn't going to starve. My parents weren't going to, like, uh, uh, put me in the lap of luxury if I didn't do anything, but they I wasn't going to end up living on the street or something. So I just want to, I'm just, I'm kind of giving you that context so that um, people understand kind of where I'm coming from. Um, that being said, I think broadly there are, um, there are two great ways of um, handling your career choices in your early 20s. Okay. I've seen them both work. Uh, there's a lot of other ones that don't work, but these both work. Okay. So um, one is, I would call it like uh, organizational man or woman. Um, that career path is like, look, um, there are very powerful uh, and profitable institutions in our society, and they require uh, talent, talented young people. And these are investment banks, they're private equity firms, they're tech firms, like whatever. Um, uh, but they, you know, they're, they're, they have established business models, they're extremely well capitalized, they're highly profitable, uh, and they require young, ambitious, motivated, talented people. And so one perfectly valid career path that I've seen work really well is people just like committing to uh, what is a pretty traditional career path, basically starting out in investment banking, 
you know, killing themselves for a couple of years, making it into private equity, killing themselves. And, and I think there's, um, there can be a, particularly on Twitter and kind of like in startup hustle culture or whatever, like um, some, um, some negativity about that career path. And like, I just want to say it's kind of bullshit. Like, honestly, I think actually my richest friend now is one who, um, who followed that path. Um, now, there are some caveats to that too. Like, um, you got you to gotta wiggle your way into a position where um, you have accountability for outcomes. So you can't, it's like, you don't want to be a cog in the wheel. You kind of want to be in one of those big institutions and have, and, and be in a position to shape outcomes. And quick then- question, uh, Quick question on that note though. Do you think that the people who follow that path and tend to go and be some of your more successful friends, do you think that they are more successful because of that path they followed or just that uh, typically the IB and PE world seem to attract really like kind of more money focused and motivated individuals? I think that um, I think that those firms are big and powerful and well capitalized because they have highly repeatable business models that have like proven out to generate a lot of wealth for their owners. And those owners to make that money require like motivated, uh, smart, ambitious people. And those people are going to get paid. And so, um, so I think like they're they're. Uh, of course, there's some selection bias, and you gotta. It's it's a it's a um, it's a very it's an interesting line to walk because what they're looking for, uh, uh, and, I, and I'm not one of these people, but what they're looking for is someone who is sufficiently motivated and ambitious to like to take responsibility for things and push things forward and have ideas and create value, while not being so entrepreneurial that they're like, fuck this, I'm gonna start my own thing, right? Like it's a very, it's a very narrow line to walk and, and there are, and not every personality can do that. There are, some people are like, I'm not gonna work for anyone else under any circumstances and that's it. But I'm saying if you are one of these people who can stomach it, there yeah. is a lot of money to be made just climbing the ladder, sucking it up, working your ass off, you know, being willing to travel, being willing to, not spend a lot of time with your family, being willing to work 80 hour weeks into your, well into your thirties. Like, um, that, and it's not like, I couldn't do that life, but um, the people who I know who have done it and stuck with it are now in their early forties making like fortunes really. And without having taken a lot of uh, personal risk at all. That, that was a very like kind of personal decision I've been struggling with over the past couple of years was very similar to that. Like for most of my life, that was a route I wanted to go down was I want to go the investment banking route, private equity, and then, you know, figure out what I want to do after that. And I quickly found out I just could not be happy at all doing the work. Um, so I do yeah. think there's definitely a personality aspect to it. Cause I, like, I loved it in the beginning, but as soon as I stopped doing, you know, new things, I was like, I can't, I'm going to, I'm going to kind of go crazy here. Yeah. And it's, I mean, and it's, it's boring. Someone's often telling you what to do. Uh, you're like I said. I mean, you're you're gonna eat in private equity. You're gonna eat a lot of steak dinners and like crappy steakhouse, airport steakhouses in towns that you probably prefer not to be in, and stay in bad hotel rooms and all that stuff. So I don't mean to glamorize it, but like basically, someone's got to do it, right? And it's not that pleasant, and it's but it's highly profitable. So those companies know they're if they want good people, they really are gonna have to pay. And if you're the kind of person who can suck it up 
uh, uh, the re- the rewards definitely uh, can be there. What was our second choice though? Because you said that there were kind of two paths, right? Yeah. So, I mean, obviously there's the startup path, right? Like, or going and doing something on your own. And there's obviously there's, there's different flavors of that. Um, but one thing I want to say, I made a huge mistake in this regard in my, in my 20s. So I was, I started out um, at a doing media uh, and tech M&A at a tiny little boutique shop in London. And um, I decided I got the right idea, right? I saw that um, we were selling these companies and people, the owners of those companies were putting away, these, these were like lower middle market deals, but like the owners of the companies were putting away like $50 million, $100 million, like life-changing, amazing money, right? And I'm looking at these guys and I'm like, um, some of you guys didn't even go to college. And meanwhile, like I went to Princeton and I'm sitting here in a room, it's three in the morning and like that girl over there went to Harvard and, and the guy over here has got a degree from Oxford and we're all killing ourselves. You know, we're making okay money, but like that guy is going to make 75 million pounds if this deal closes, right? So it was like, okay, I got to get on the ownership side. That's smart <laughs> or can be smart. The mistake I made though, is I jumped into doing a startup where the total addressable market for the service that we were offering was like probably $20 million. <laughs> Which and is, was this one that you started or you just went to go work for one? No, I started. I started, I like, my brother and I had this like stupid idea. We go into, if you want, it's like uh, technology services for actors and casting directors. And like a good friend of mine put up the money for us to build. We, we weren't coders. Like, and by the way, like now you can kind of do no code, but like 15 years ago, doing no, co- you, you had, doing a startup without having, without being technical was really stupid. I mean, I, I still think it's pretty stupid, but this was really stupid. Um, so we, so we had to raise some money to pay some coders and a buddy of mine put up the dough for us to start this stupid company. And I remember, um, sitting down with him after he had already made the investment and he was like, well, let's talk about the market, like whatever. And his question was like, okay, how much is, you know, how, what is the total amount of money spent on casting movies every year? And I was like, I don't know, $10 million or $20 million, whatever it was. And he was just like, you fucking moron. <laughs> Because like, as obviously, as presumably as your listeners know, like you, you only, if you're going to do, and this is kind of the, the point of, of, of talking about this is if you're going to take the risk of trying to do a startup, which almost by definition is like a new business model, you're taking new business model risk. Like you're trying to do something new that people have not done before. If you're, and it's probably not going to work because that's just the way of the, of the world. But if you're going to take that risk and go do something, like go shoot at a market where if you hit it, it's really big and it and it's worth the, the you know the, the expected value makes sense like low probability of uh, success but high payout if it does. What I did and what I would strongly recommend your listeners not do is take the downside risk of doing something that had business model risk that probably was not going to work with a payout that was not commensurate to the risk that was that was that we were accepting. So, so Tam, like the total adjustable market is obviously like a, a big element there. Are there other variables that you see what that would determine what a good huge swing would be versus a bad huge swing? Like uh, thinking of it in the eyes of um, real estate, I guess, like, like one example is we had two guests on the show, both in their mid twenties, one left the corporate path. Uh, I think he was working at IBM or something like that prior. Um, and his definition of risk 
which may be like a huge swing. It's like, I'm just going to go house hack. And every single year, I'm going to go buy one new home. And like to some people, that seems very, very risky. To him, he's now like 28 or something in that ballpark and owns like 32 uh, doors, I think like eight quads, something like that. That's one level. Uh, the other level is we have someone on the show like a year ago who's 21 or 22 now. And he owns like, I want to say like 140 units and he's like all seller financing like super levered up like crazy like two like in, in, in the eyes of like my grandmother who knows nothing about business or anything like that like they're doing the same thing but on a totally different level like she would view that risk the same are there other ways of thinking like what's good risk versus bad risk yeah well i think um yes the answer is yes so um the reason that i like real estate in general okay is that you are not really taking business model risk, okay? Like it, people need places to do business. People need houses. People need places to shop. Like people need places to sleep at night when they're traveling. Like obviously I've just named most of the big asset classes in real estate. So like there is no business model risk. People have been building and renting out apartment buildings literally since at least the time of the Roman the product market fit is already established. Yeah, it's, it's Lindy, right? Like real estate is Lindy. People need places to live and sleep and shop and all that stuff. So um, you're not taking business model risk. Uh, what is the downside? Well, the downside is that because there's no business model risk, it's super competitive. And so your mar- you, there's no, um, you, you, we, you can use leverage and, and both of those guys that you're talking about are using a lot of leverage and there's a lot, there's some issues there so that we can talk about. Um, but um, real estate is, or, or at least should be a get rich slow kind of business in the sense that it's highly competitive. You're not taking business model risk. It will work. If you buy and, and run an apartment building reasonably well, you will have tenants and they will pay you and it will probably work out okay as long as you're not highly levered. Um, but, but you're not going to get rich quickly that way. You know, the good news is that like the 10,000th best real estate investor in the United States is really rich. Like, so in other words, the base rate, you guys, you're presumably you guys are familiar, your listeners are familiar with the, the concept of the base rate. Like the reason I love real estate is because the base rate is enormously high. It's, it's, it's a, it's a, if you, uh, if you work hard and you're reasonably smart and you are reasonably honest, you are almost certain to become pretty rich. Now you're almost certainly not going to be a billionaire. You're sort of like canning off the opportunity to really shoot the moon in most cases, but in exchange for a, a, a high probability that you end up being worth five to 50 million or whatever that, whatever those numbers are. Um, so that's, so, so anyway, so that's, so that's real estate. So, so with, with startups with, or at least done properly where you are taking business model risk, the beautiful thing about it, it's like the Peter Thiel stuff about being like the ideal company being like a monopoly, right? Like, what is amazing about a startup, a properly executed startup, is that you're you're sailing into like uncharted territory, and if it works, you don't have any competition. Your margins are insane. You grow quickly. There's so much wealth creation so quickly uh, that that obviously there's a chance to become you know a billionaire really fast. Um, so that so I kind of think like those those are the tricks. What you don't want to do is kind of like get yourself caught in the middle where you're taking risk commensurate with one with. Uh, uh, with payouts commensurate with the other. What would you view as some of the decision criteria then of someone that might've just graduated school, they're, you know, young twenties or in between, Hey, you know, do I want to go 
swing for the fences and, and try to go make a billion dollars on a startup? Do I go for, you know, the corporate route for a couple of years? Do I do that in house hack? Because they're, they're significantly, you know, different routes, kind of to the extreme on, on all aspects. Um, but wait, I think, I think, I think the caveat that maybe because the, the answer is totally going to be, it depends on what you want, right? Like it's gotta be like, the, like dependent on like where that end goal is, like that probably determines what you want. If like you need to be a billionaire, you should probably try to go and build that billion dollar company. Cause it's super low chance, but being a low, being a billionaire at first place, is low chance. Right. Like, but, but is it worth to go the, the IB and then PE route and then go to try to do the startup and then tackle everything or. I, yeah. I, so, I mean, look, there's who knows, right? I mean, there's, there's, there's endless numbers of ways to skin the cat. So much of this is contingent and luck-based and everything. But um, what I would say is the following. Um, if you uh, went to the kind of college and or got the kind of grades that would allow you to get into a high quality finance position starting out, uh, that would be my bet. And, and I say this to someone who I don't know if you would call my starting place high quality. Like it was kind of a tiny boutique and fine, but like, um, but, but it was okay preparation. And the, the reason I, I recommend doing a couple of years in finance first is um, it is likely if you're a smart person that you have been able on some level to coast a little bit academically uh, and, um, and probably do less than your best work and you've probably been, because you're in college, you're probably like drinking or whatever else you're doing and like having a good time. And that's just college, it's cool. Like people should do it if they can. Um, what happens in finance in that first couple of years, if you're somewhere good, is you basically get like socialized into the work world in the best possible way. Like, no, there's a lot of money on the line. These are adults. People are trying to feed their families. They're, you know, and, and they're, they're, these, are, these deals are, career making for people we're not tolerating anything less than your best effort and like oh i made some typos is like not going to cut it right and so like there are very few places in the rest of the work world where that level of uh of work and and that quality of output is necessary like you can do really well in real estate with still making some mistakes like it's not working at like the the, at, at the absolute peak, but it's very good for your career to start out like getting an example and getting trained like, okay, this is what really hard work looks like. And this is what uh, zero defect output looks like. And I will definitely say like, it certainly sets a precedent. I know the first job I ever really even had in college, it was like, I, I joined, I think it was like a 12 or 13 person team at the time of this startup that basically had no, nothing in revenue. Um, and just last year, this, this is now five years since I was there, they sold for over a billion dollars. Um, and I'm like, like in hindsight, I was like, I should have gotten some stock. Uh, but, but what was cool is like, I was there for zero, like basically 15 employees to hundred employees over the course of eight months, saw them go from like zero to 5 million in revenue super quickly. And in my mind, it was my first job ever. And I remember working these crazy hours and I was like, this is normal. This is like, this is what a job is. This is how a company is supposed to grow. This is how they're supposed to hire. And then I went to go and work for other companies afterwards. And it was a lot more lackadaisical. People wanted to talk about corporate values and like a bunch of other, like a little bit more high level stuff. And I was like, guys, this isn't like, like who's selling here? Like, what are we, what are we doing? And so I do think that having that precedent of like working for a place where they kind of put you through the ringer, even if it's maybe not the most glamorous stuff sets your work quality to a really high standard 
Do you yep. think that is um, like when, when you think of somebody maybe going to work for somebody else versus going and getting started on their own early on, do you think it's enough to almost go after that brand name of saying like, listen, I just want to work for Goldman or I just want to work for Uber because people know the name and like they have some high, Uber maybe is a bad example, um, but like they have like a high like precedent or would you try to maybe reverse engineer it of saying, listen, there's this guy, Joe Smith over this company and Joe Smith I've heard is a killer. I want to work directly for Joe. Look, if you have the ability to change, I'm sorry, to pick your, to pick your boss and work for someone who uh, is both uh, very talented at what he or she does and also takes an interest in, in you and wants to develop you as a person, you should do that. I don't know that most young people directly coming out of college have the network to be able to do that or even like the frame of reference to be able to tell. Like I, I, when I was coming out, like I barely knew what banking was. Uh, and I like I had no way to to distinguish between someone who was good at it and someone who wasn't. Like I don't even know. I wouldn't have even known um, how to, how to make that distinction. So, um, look, brand name really matters. Um, it, it, look, it, it obviously kind of depends. Um, and, and a lot of this stuff is luck and again contingent. But look, if you if you can go work at Goldman, <laughs> you know, like if if you can't, like uh, one of the slightly lesser investment banks or whatever, and I'm not an expert in this stuff, but but one of the slightly lesser investment banks is good too. It's more, it, it's you, eventually, the, the longer you go in your career, the more that your outcomes are determined by your results, as opposed to the brand names on your resume and like your test scores or other kinds of bullshit that you're used to from being young and in college and high school and all that stuff. So longer term, I, do, I think that those brands start to matter less and less. But um, so, but so, if you have a choice, if you can go work for Blackstone early on, you should go work for Blackstone. But like, it's more important that you at least get um, get socialized into like what is hard work, what is high quality output, um, and then I mean, it's important. We can talk about different paths that you can take afterwards. It's important to understand. And I think you just um, you just alluded to it. It's important to understand that not every company is going to have a culture like that and that that can be okay mm. like you can do really well without having that culture of like we're gonna we're gonna be killers yeah okay and in fact sometimes that i made this mistake early in my career like trying to import that culture of we're gonna be killers into a company where it shouldn't exist can cause problems so but you should at least know what it looks like you should yeah. at least have experienced it so that then you can decide, okay, later on, like, do I want to have that culture in other organizations I'm involved with or not? Of course. Yeah. Like I, I have um, like friends who work at HubSpot, if you're familiar, the, the CRM platform and like their work culture is certainly a lot more laid back. Like they're, they're more worried about, you know, where the juice bar is or something like that in the lobby in the morning over in Cambridge. But like that company is also still a several hundred billion dollar company. So like there's no right or wrong way. So I think it's important to at least recognize what it is once you're getting in. Yeah, I mean, for, for us, like we, so I'm running a business that I'm going to run for the rest of my life. And um, we, it's, it, it's very much, particularly on the property management side, it's like, it's very, there's no end to property management. There's no goal. There's no exit. Like we are the stewards of a bunch of buildings that people, you know, a bunch of capital, a bunch of buildings that people have entrusted us with. And we intend to do that like until I'm dead and hopefully one of my kids will be doing it or whatever, or someone else will. So like, you can't have people burning out. You can't, you just can't pressure people like that. You need to let them have 
periods where they don't work as hard. You need to let them have vacations. You need to let them leave their work at the office and go home at night and not have people bothering them. Like, because otherwise the thing fall, the wheels fall off, right? If you're trying to do something that's gonna be generation. So that's what I mean about being mindful about, about what culture is appropriate for which, for which type of company. Yeah, that makes sense. One, one question that I've got here that um, I know it's certainly big in the real estate community, but I think it can be very helpful for people that are starting their career too. You know, Gary Keller has got the whole, the one thing book. We had Chris Powers on the show. He's very big on just like focusing. And I, and I honestly, I know, I think it was you who tweeted this out a while ago and I couldn't find the tweet. So I might be making this up and let me know if I am, but it was something along the lines of like, and I'm paraphrasing here completely, but like you, when you see somebody who's like a little bit younger and early in their career and they have like, they're focusing on like three or four different things. Like you kind of cringe a little bit because you're like, ah, like, you know, you should be going and like focusing all on this entirely one thing. Um, oh. And I know I'm, I'm certainly, was, was, that, was that you? Cause I couldn't find it. So I'm just, it's stuck, it's stuck in my head for a while. Um, and it, it's one of those things. Cause like, I certainly do a lot of things. Like, you know, we buy and sell land, we do storage, do some e-commerce. Like I'm, I'm all over the map. And for me, it's just more fun that way. Um, but I think also it's a part of like, as you're kind of like starting off in your career, uh, you just like, you frankly just don't know, like you're like, you're coming out of college, you're drinking, you're hanging out with friends and like, you want to figure out like, do I like this real estate stuff? Do I like this agency world? Like what, what is it that's interesting? Um, can you maybe elaborate a little bit more on what you, what maybe you meant by that? And then like the concept of focus early in your career? Yeah, sure. So that was my tweet. Um, I think it was something like, um, this was a while ago, but it was something like I cringe when I see someone who describes themselves as a jack of all trades. And, uh, and it's like maybe later on in your career, you've sort of had a bunch of different experiences. And you, but early on, man, it is hard enough to add value when you're 23 or 24 in one area. Like it, it's, there's, I mean, look, there's, there are jobs where what they really just need is someone to like, have, you know, work 15 hours a day or whatever. Okay. But like, even the next level up and the two, next two levels up, like you start to actually have to know what you're talking about. And it's just extremely difficult to be value additive across a range of different things. Like um, you just, you, you, you're, and you're competing in each one of those things with people who have made it their life's mission to be experts in those things. And so, yeah, there, there's, there's a counter argument, which is that if you're going to start your own thing, if you're going to be a CEO or whatever, then you're going to, by definition, at least in the beginning, like need to know a little bit about HR and a little bit about this and a little bit of sales and marketing, whatever. But so there's, I'm not saying that it's terrible to be a jack of all trades, but I'm saying particularly early on, um, you, you really do want to get a specialty pretty quickly. And I'll, I'll say a couple of other things about that. One is I think that the specialty needs to be revenue generated. In other words, do not, if you're an ambitious person, you need to not be a cost center in your organization. You need to be a revenue center. Like, and that means sales, maybe it means marketing. It depends, maybe- in so You're saying don't, don't become an accountant or a lawyer? <laughs> um, yeah, I don't mean to be, we, we have great accountants, <laughs> we have great lawyers, and I'm, you know, but if you're, if you're um, if, and, and God knows we need, every, every company needs them. But if you really, if you're trying to shoot the moon, like you really need to get uh, as quickly as possible into a position where you're responsible for generating revenue. This is like back to the Naval thing about like, you wanna get um, leverage and accountability. Like this is the accountability thing. You, just, you need to be in a position where your actions uh, generate top line for your company uh, and you can be measured. Um, 
So that's, uh, so, so I, I'm saying, I don't think you should be a jack of all trades. I think you should pick one early on. And I think it wants to be something where, uh, where you're making the cash register ring. Um, later, later on, there's, you know, there are benefits to diversifying, but, but not, not, not early. I want to kind of go back to a little bit, um, the, the conversation on, you know, maybe going the investment banking PE route. Is the risk there, though, not kind of getting into a golden handcuff situation to the extent where you're not going to make the, the big swings? Like, I'm, I'm kind of happy at this point because I feel like if someone's paying me a consistent, absurd amount of money every year right now, I probably wouldn't be doing a lot of the things I am currently yeah. doing. So how do you kind of yeah. compare I that, mean, though? The most important piece of advice that I give to any young person who's going to go the path that I'm kind of recommending is like, for the love of God, do not allow your lifestyle expectations to inflate along with your salary. Like you, you because that's the golden handcuffs. It's not the money so much, it's your spending level. Um, it was funny when I was in banking, um, I remember them making fun of me about, I was wearing like, I didn't know any better. I was working in London. I was like, I bought some like Brooks Brothers suits or something. Cause like for that's, I, I don't know. That's what I thought of as like a nice suit. And I remember them like just, they were just ruthlessly making fun of me. And I was like, on the one hand, it's like, okay, I'm the American and I'm young. And of course they're going to make fun of me. But on the other hand, there's the subtext where it's like, oh, um, I realized later, it's like they socialize you into buying $2,000 suits because your lifestyle expectations keep rising along with your salary. And then you're on the treadmill and you never leave. So like that you, 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 you need to, you're going to see people like falling and you need to, if you're serious about, um, getting the experience there, but not getting trapped in it, then you need to keep your, um, your spending in check. And that's a very hard thing when, because the culture of it is to push you to spend. And, and then I guess on, on the other hand, some of these big swings, I don't know, were, were there any that allowed you to kind of realize, hey, I can go figure this out on my own? Are there good like swings to start with? Because I feel like I know so many people that are a lot of friends that went the, the, the kind of IBP route and it's either, I think their spending kind of went up and they, you know, they originally wanted to go and, and go the startup route and they can't now, or it's a, you know, where do you, what steps do you take after having this whole career? You know, a lot of people don't have maybe a creative startup idea necessarily, but are entrepreneurial enough where they do want to, you know, be in charge of their day to day and, and run a business. Yeah. Look, if I were, um, starting out today, the two opportunities that I would pursue, and this is, by, well, you'll see, uh, the two opportunities I would pursue are one, um, you know, some sort of search fund entrepreneurship through acquisition type situation. Uh, I just think that that is uh, kind of an unbeatable opportunity for someone who's um, got the right background, enough of a business background to kind of be dangerous, like willing to work really hard and wanting to control uh, your own destiny. Um, they're just, it's just, a, it's a, it's an awesome, it's an awesome route. Um, and I've seen people do really well with that. Um, uh, so that's one. And then the other thing is, I think, um, I love the idea of, um, what I would call like a modern media business. Um, I'm just, um, we can talk about it more if you want, but my entire career has been basically facilitated by content marketing. And so what I did is I sort of like made myself a subject expert in buying and re renovating a Los Angeles apartment building and managing them. And then I talked about that first in a blog, later on Twitter and podcasts and everything. And um, 
that led to more and more investors coming to us, more and more deals, more and more content, more and more investors, more and more deals. And it, um, and that, that is, that's replicable. I believe there's, um, uh, one of the beautiful things about niche media, 21st century media, is that um, the cost of production is verging on zero. And so um, 20th century media is like, um, we need to aggregate, aggregate a huge audience of relatively uh, like normal people to sell ads to Budweiser or Chevrolet or whatever, okay? Um, 21st century media is the cost of production is really small. So you can create, you guys are doing it. Like you can create a little niche audience that is like, you know, Budweiser would laugh at you if you brought them the audience, but if the audience is sufficiently affluent and you have a good way to monetize it, then um, you can make a fuckload of money from a very small audience. Right. And it starts right away. There's no business model risk. Like there, you already, like with us, um, I needed to grow a real estate business um, and we didn't have any money. So I decided I wanted a broker and I didn't want a cold call. So I just started writing about buying apartment buildings and then people started reading and then asking me to help them buy apartment buildings. So it was like a perfect way to, the audience was like, maybe it was 5,000 people a month reading my blog, but it was a boring ass blog. And the people who were like reading it religiously were exactly the kind of people who were very likely to buy apartment buildings. And each one who we, I helped buy a building, I'd get like a 20 grand check or a 40 grand check or whatever. And so there's like a clear monetization engine for it. And so like that, that just like, that is just such an epiphany, like, you, you know, tiny audience, but highly monetizable with a, um, a, a, a tried and true business model, in this case, brokerage, but there's a million other ones. Um, that's a very powerful, low risk way to get into startups, get into owning your own thing um, that, you know, doesn't require any capital and it starts generating money from early on and it, and it so it's bootstrappable. Yeah, I know. Uh, I know you're a fan of Seth Godin, so I'm assuming that maybe there's some crossover there with Gary Vaynerchuk as well. Um, but I just, I just remember that like five or ten years ago, Gary Vaynerchuk put out some video that basically like described what 21st century media marketing is. It's like there is going to be a person in like five or ten years who's making a hundred thousand dollars a year just vlogging about peanut butter. And like you know, as dumb of an example as that is, he's absolutely right. Uh, you can theoretically have ownership in any level of domain, like the fact that there's some guy out there with, I think, a million plus followers on Instagram who just eats raw meat outside of Whole Foods every single day. Like, like there are people out there yeah. who are doing ridiculous stuff and, and you're able to get attention because you can attract a certain type of audience. Um, you know, I think I think I actually had here uh, one of the questions was I, I was going through your blog, try to find some content for this interview. And you you had your first blog post back in 2011. So I guess. At that point now, like over a decade, right? And I think literally I was just trying to find random blog posts that might be relevant to this conversation. And you have 109 pages on that blog, right? So like you basically built up this like portfolio of work that kind of walks through your thinking and how it's evolved over decades. Um, and you know, you've talked about how that kind of has impacted your career from attracting investors and having some kind of monetization element on the back end. Um, I'd love to maybe get a better understanding in terms of maybe two two back-to-back -back questions here. The first would be um, one, not only has it, how has it impacted your career? How has it impacted maybe more like your life? Like, is it like becoming better at writing? Has it made you better at business? Has it made you better at other areas in life? Um, and then secondly, um, if it is 2022 today and uh, Moses has never put anything out on the internet, would you once again go and start on your own blog? Yeah. Um, so let me uh, let me take those uh, one after the other. So um, 
First, with respect to writing. So the reason that there's so many entries on that blog was I basically wrote every single day, uh, every single weekday for like five or six years. Wow. I would literally come into the office every single day, sit down, and the first thing I did would be to bang out a, you know, whatever, 200, 500 words about whatever it was I was thinking about. And How old were you at the time? Uh, I am 42. So I must've been like 30, 31, something like that when I started doing it. And, um, I'm a, I am a, a creature of habit. Like I wake up at the same time every day. I lift weights every day, breakfast at the same place every day. I order the same two or three things. I wear the same clothes. Like I'm a, I'm a repetitive, uh, routine kind of person. So I just made this part of my routine. Um, and, uh, so that's how it fit into my life. Now, um, I stopped blogging, uh, years ago when we sort of got to the point where we had a, what I thought at the time was like enough capital relationships. We, we stopped doing the brokerage thing that I talked about a moment ago. We were just doing, um, investment and property management, and we kind of like had enough capital partners. Um, then I started writing, I discovered Twitter and I started writing every day on Twitter, just the way I had written every day in the blog. And boom. Like it just exploded in a way that the blog never exploded. Um, and uh, I mean, comically, because if, if someone had told me about Twitter 10 years ago, I'd probably be a lot richer now. <laughs> um, but um, so, so to answer your, oh, and, and, and just a, the, the final uh, piece about the writing. Uh, yes, writing every day makes you a better writer, like hands down. And that has all kinds of positive impacts in terms of how you communicate with people uh, in your day to day. Um, I'm also like a screen addict, like a Twitter, um, I've become a Twitter addict and that's like not great for my like marriage and, uh, <laughs> and my, my fathering my children. Um, uh, but, you know, so that's a constant struggle. Um, but that's, that's, that's how it's impacted my life. In terms of what I think someone should do now, I do not think that blogging is the right um, avenue to get started. Um, the good thing about blogging is that you own your own platform, so no one can take it away from you. The bad thing is that you don't have distribution except for through Google. Um, the social media platforms like Instagram and LinkedIn and Twitter, obviously, um, provide the distribution. You know, they expose you potentially to a very large audience, but of course, the downside is they own the platform. So uh, my advice to someone starting out would be to uh, use one or more of the, to build a large audience on one or more of those social platforms, but to funnel that audience to um, a mailing list that you own. So basically probably a website with some kind of email uh, uh, capture. Um, uh, and that sort of allows you to leverage the distribution you get from the big platforms while um, ensuring that if one of them wakes up on the wrong side of the bed and decides to cancel your account, that um, that you don't lose everything. It's interesting. Too. Sorry, go ahead. Well, I was just gonna say, like, content as a form of leverage is pretty interesting as well because essentially it is the cheapest type of leverage in the sense that, like, you don't have to deal with people, you don't have to deal with money, you don't have to go in and deal with a lot of that stuff. Um, and it makes the rest of that leverage, like whether it's financial or human or, or whatever it is, much easier, right? Like I would imagine because of all of the, literally over a decade of you sharing your thoughts and your deals and the way you think about things, more people want to work for you. More people want to give you money. Um, you know, it makes, it makes it easier to go and like have a phone call with somebody who you maybe you want to be in the same room as. Um, and so I would imagine like, because it's so cheap and you, the, the tough, I guess the tough, the expensive part of it is just your time, right? You just have to be consistent with it and be willing yeah. to go and put that in. 
Yeah, I mean, that's, so that's it. It's it's all just, because I mean, particularly with blogging, like Twitter's nice because you kind of like can get feedback pretty early on if you kind of do it right. But with blogging, man, I was writing into the wind for a long time, <laughs> you know, it was, and, um, but it, it, but it, you know, but it took a long time, but it started to work. And, uh, and so I kept at it. And then eventually, obviously it, it compounds just like every other good thing in the world. Um, but yeah, you do, you do need to invest in it and you need to not give up. But I'll say the other thing about that consistency that's really awesome is, um, and this is, I don't think, I, I don't think this is an original point, but um, uh, con uh, consistent content creation, um, if it's transparent and honest, um, is basically trust building at scale. So like it used to be early on, I would like, I don't know, I was like, I think I like would email, ran, I randomly try to like message people on LinkedIn being like, would you invest in our deals? And it's like, who the fuck is this guy? Absolutely not. You know, or like try to like meet people at real estate mixers. Like, okay. If you write about, if I, like for, I wrote about apartment buildings every day for year after year, after, people will now, when they come to me and they're like, I want to invest with you. And I'm like, well, let me tell you about what we do. And they're like, no, like I, I know what you do. I've been reading what you've been writing for two years now. Like, let's talk specifics about which deal and what the numbers are or whatever, but you don't have to like build trust with me or, or explain what you do. I already know that. Um, so it's, it's, it's really a magnificent way of sort of creating all of those relationships. You don't even know you're creating the relationship, but you are, and it's with hundreds or thousands of people at once. This is going to be uh, such a cringe example. So I, I apologize in advance for this, but um, I know we, I was at a um, conference like two or three years ago and Grant Cardone was on the stage. It was not even a real estate conference. It was just whatever. Um, and like total put the thoughts of that guy aside because he is what he is. Um, but I would say he had a quote that I thought was pretty interesting where something along the lines of like, um, you don't even necessarily need people to like you. You need people to know you if you're in the game of business and trying to raise money and, and do that kind of stuff. And I think specifically on real estate, Twitter and that community, you know, people see a bunch of people closing about all of these deals, but like when it comes to the actual like volume and size, like the Cardones of the world are like freaking massive because they have this crazy distribution and so many people know about them. And I'm not, and I think a lot of his stuff is, is, quite poor in taste in, in terms of how he presents himself, et cetera. But um, I do think that that point that he made a while ago was that if you are known, if people like just recognize your name as an authority in real estate or investing or like getting outsized returns, uh, it pays dividends even beyond being liked to some degree. Oh, listen, first of all, I, you, you mean, I have my thoughts about him as like an investor, but like my hat's off to him as a marketer. And like at the end of the day, like for real estate, private equity in particular, the business, like um, investor money is the gasoline that, that our businesses need to run. So like, you know, putting aside whatever you, th I mean, and I got a lot of thoughts about his specific ways he operates and all that. And I, and, I, and, and I find his marketing tasteless, but like, you can't argue with the results. I mean, I think it, it, it's in some ways not to get into politics, it's in some ways similar to our former president in the sense that like, one thing to understand is, there are a lot of people in the world and you do not need all of them to be your customers. You just need a small, like you need a relatively small group of people to like you and want to work with you. And one way to find those people quickly is to say polarizing things and do polarizing things because people talk about them. Like everyone's like, oh, look at this asshole. That everyone's talking about, look at this asshole. Your little group over here is like, ooh, that's interesting. And you don't care about the, you know, 95% of people who think you're an asshole if, if, 
if you got the support of those 5%. Now, I, for various reasons, like that is a, that is a strategy that works. Full stop from a mark. Yeah. I don't, I, I prefer um, for various reasons not to do that. Um, I don't like, because it requires that you say and do provocative things that um, it's just outside my personality. Like I don't, I see nuance everywhere. Like I don't like making definitive black and white statements because I already, I always know what the counter argument is. So like what I just, it makes me sound like an idiot. So, so I, so I, I, I personally don't want to do that, but it, but it, there's no question that that is a, uh, that that is a, 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 a successful way to go about uh, building a personal brand. In terms of raising money and, and raising capital and also being very public at the same time, you know, there, there's now, there's a couple of people on Twitter that don't raise any money that are, you know, kind of post wild stuff. And then you, you look at the people that do post that, that are raising money that it's a little bit more um, laid back. I'm curious, how does, how does your opinion on creating content? If, you know, your goal maybe isn't to raise money, is it still, is it still worth it? Um, well, A, you know, can you even scale without raising money? But like, is, is there still that that draw of, you know, building out the, the network there? And then what are the risks maybe too, right? Because you definitely have to be cognizant of, hey, someone's going to give you money. You can't just say crazy things. Well, depending on who you are. Yeah, I mean, maybe you can. I don't know. Like, I, you know, there, uh, the truth is that there are investors for every operator. And like the, the trick is basically finding the investors who vibe with you. Um, so the answer is you probably actually can act like an asshole and still and, and do say crazy stuff and do fine. Um, um, in terms of uh, the value, I mean, look, um, we, I have been able to meet as a result of just writing on Twitter, some of my personal heroes. Like I'm not gonna get into naming names cause it's not, but like I, have, I met, well, first of all, I met people who I were, they were my heroes before I met them. Uh, I have also been able to meet people who have become some of my heroes as a result of having met them and now done business with them. Um, and that is an incredibly powerful thing. I mean, one of the experiences that I had on Twitter early on that was just fucking mind blowing is Naval, I think, posted something about how no one does any original work working at a university. And I was like, or maybe it was, I think it was Naval, or, and then or Nassim Taleb, like basically, I don't know, amplified what Naval had said. And I was just like, what are you talking about? Nabokov was at Cornell when he wrote Lolita, like whatever, like three examples of Newton, like coming up with gravity when he was at Cambridge. Like it was like, a, you know, and it was kind of like a throwaway, like reply guy thing to say, but then Nassim Taleb was like, you idiot, like, blah, you know, like, and you're just like, oh my God, like, if you say smart things or smart provocative things, you can just like write your way into a relationship with anyone. Like it's so flat, right? Like it doesn't matter if you're that, that I'm a nobody and Taleb is a, this famous thinker, like it's so leveling. So, um, and I just don't think there's any other, like what other part of society or life can you, you don't have to, it's a complete intellectual democracy. Like you don't have to belong to the same clubs. You don't have to have gone to the same schools. No one cares who your father was. You can be a fucking cartoon character with a gobbledygook name. But if you say smart things, 
like your ideas can get traction. You can also get traction with a lot of dumb ideas too. That's a whole other thing. But um, it's it it is a remarkable remarkable thing. It it is it's it's uh, it's it's amazing. Well, it's been life changing for me, and I, and I think for a lot of other people as well. Yeah, you have you have a really high level of access. And and what's interesting too is that other person on the other side of that tweet is almost like because of the way these programs are designed are like systematically designed to be like like I'm gonna read everything that somebody tweets at me because like what if it's interesting like why why not read it right like i don't i don't necessarily scroll through who's liking what but if somebody says replies to me and says something like i don't know maybe it's important i'm going to check it out um so like they're almost engineered to go and want to engage or see it unless they've got like millions of responses yeah Um, well and let me also just say like this is something that i think a lot of people don't understand like um, even so, I don't, I don't have like a huge following, right? I think I have like seventy-five thousand followers, which is big, but like compared to you know, it's nothing in the, in the grand scheme of things. Um, if someone like replies in a smart way to a few posts of mine over a short period of time, like already, I think that person's interesting, and that like I'm going to follow them and like start interest. Like it's it, in other words, it doesn't take even at even at the scale that I'm at. Like it, it it's still rare for people to be like reply in like a cogent thoughtful interesting way a few times and that's all really all it takes to get noticed like you're just like oh this is really and i still do the same like i i I try to write thoughtful smart things on other people's accounts big and small because that's just a way to meet interesting people it's like a huge cocktail party and you can go up to anyone in the whole world right not even moving It's, (laughs) it's it's amazing yeah um, I, I want to wrap up with just this one question personally for me. Uh, when I was going through your blog, trying to find some good stuff, you had this like honestly perfectly titled post for today's episode back in 2018, which was advice to recent college graduates. Um, and the, the advice ended up being mostly like reading advice in terms of like what kind of content should you go and be consuming on a pretty daily basis. Um, and the, the three big things were really like read the Wall Street Journal on a daily basis. Um, I think it was markets and business sections. Uh, read all of Buffett's annual shareholder letters starting back in 1965, read uh, four to five companies' annual reports from industries that you're interested in. Um, you know, flash forward four years now, are these still like the same reading materials you'd be giving people? And I know you have a whole separate reading list on your blog as well. Um, or would, would anything maybe change in terms of uh, just general advice to, to recent college grads? Yeah, well, in terms of reading, the thing that I would add, which I mean, I don't think I had, I had not read it at the time I wrote that blog post and like, what a fucking moron, because I should have, uh, is um, the collected Jeff Bezos letters, the Invent and Wander. Uh, it's, it's, so it's, there's the, you can buy both of these, uh, both the Berkshire, the Buffett letters, and also the Bezos letters are available uh, in collected versions, you know, on Kindle or whatever. Um, and I think, I continue to believe, they, they can both be a little bit repetitive, um, but I continue to believe that though that that those two things, if you read those two books, uh, you almost can learn you can learn almost everything you need to learn about business just from reading those two books. Um, really, I know that that's that's hyperbolic, but just in terms of the whole gamut of like why it's important to be um, uh, to, to be trustworthy and to trust, like all the way through like weird things about capital allocation and markets and, and leverage and insurance and all just, it's like an MBA in two books. So uh, I can't, I just can't recommend those strong enough. And by the way, it is not surprising that like the two best books ever written about business are written by like two of the greatest business people of all time, right? Like I'm sure they had some ghostwriters or whatever, but fundamentally like these people are very clear thinkers about business and they went out and did really big things and they're like 
This is how we're doing it. And you can read year after year as their thinking evolves. Here's what we learned. We bought this business. It was a mistake. Here's why. We bought this one. Whoa, this did way better than we thought it was. Like, it's just amazing. Um, so those, so, so yeah, so those are, um, those are the things that I would read. Um, I also think, like, I think Twitter is really, and I, at the time in 2018, I had not discovered Twitter yet. So um, I, I think that getting a Twitter account and following a bunch of people, not widely, like you don't, you want to focus on what you're interested in. If it's business, it's business, like, or it's tech or whatever, but like, you want to focus, you want to follow people who, who write good stuff and you want to curate it. Cause that, I mean, that, it literally become their thinking becomes your thinking. So you have to be careful about, about who you follow, but uh, it's an incredible resource. Well, I'm, I'm sure after this podcast, everyone's probably going to want to make sure they follow you and keep up to date with everything you're doing. Um, where can people find you on Twitter, off Twitter, and keep up with everything that you're involved with? Yeah, Twitter's honestly the easiest. It's just at Moses Kagan, uh, K-A-G-A-N. Um, and uh, my blog is kagansblog.com. I, I don't... Um, write on it anymore, but I still use that for my mailing list. Uh, and I, the truth is, I should probably take the blog down because it has educated, I would, I, I, this is gonna sound um, obnoxious, but it's true. I've educated, I imagine hundreds and possibly thousands of competitors <laughs> for to buy, who wanna buy buildings of the type that I buy. Um, and really I should take it down. And the reason I don't take it down is um, that I felt no one taught me this business. I had to learn it. And uh, so I feel a great debt of gratitude. Like I, no one, I didn't know that real estate private equity existed when I graduated college and it has like made my life amazing. And so leaving the blog up in a certain kind of way is me like being like, here's the ladder. Like if you want, if you like, you know, it sucks because I kind of in some ways prefer from a financial perspective if you didn't climb it. But I wish that that ladder existed when uh, when I was looking for one. And so that's why it's there. Awesome. Thank you, Moses. Really appreciate you coming on. Yeah, happy to do that. Thanks, guys. If you thought today's episode was awesome, we would love it if you would leave a five-star review on the podcast, either on Spotify or Apple Podcasts. It makes a huge difference and lets us get cooler and cooler guests for future episodes. Thank you.